This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays, and I'm very excited about our final preview podcast before the NFL kicks off. We're going to be joined a little bit later by the Athletics' Lindsey Jones to break down all of our award winners, predictions, playoff teams, who's going to win the Super Bowl, all of that good stuff. But before Lindsey hops on, I'm very pleased to be joined by my good friend, Athletic Saints writer Catherine Terrell, to preview the NFC South. Kat, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I It's crazy that we're doing a podcast together how things have I changed know. in the last month but i'm super excited and uh, i'm super excited to be talking about real football that is going to happen tomorrow like in less than 24 hours or maybe like a little more than 24 hours either way it's, it's very, very strange the last time i saw you i think the last time you and i kind of spent time together we went to giacomo's and i bought like 200 dollars worth of food in new orleans and we ate it all i ate yes. it all and you kind of were, were an odd bystander that was amazing. I probably only didn't eat that much because I probably ate right before. But I can't believe I didn't see it at the combine. Either way, that's crazy. That was a long time it's, ago. It, it seems like an entirely different world. I, I'm not sure when I'll be going back to New Orleans or anywhere else. But you are very familiar with the Saints. Obviously, you are both from Louisiana. You've covered the team for a while at a couple different stops. We are going to start with the New Orleans Saints because I think that you know, we'll get to this in our preview part with Lindsay a little bit later, but I think this team is going to be extremely good. They're immensely deep. But before we start digging into the roster and the depth chart and all of this other stuff, let's please talk about the Jadevian Clowney chase, because it to me is the most entertaining, craziest thing I can remember an NFL team doing in terms of adding personnel. So I want to just, why don't you lay it out for me? What was like Clowney watch like for you as you were trying to follow this earlier in the weekend? Well, Clowney Watch actually started all the way back in, I don't know, June maybe? It's pandemic time. I can't remember anymore. But Time way, is meaningless. Yeah. Way earlier in the summer. And I just remember I just shot a couple of – like I reached out to a couple of people just testing the waters and it was just the same response. Like too much money, too much money. He wants too much money. At the time he wanted like $17 million a year and he wasn't getting that. So things just quiet down. And I told fans, I said, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but it's not going to happen now. So we get all the way in training camp. We're focused on the Camara stuff. And then it's it's almost like, well, that goes away for two days. He returns to practice. And they just totally reverse course and go run to Texas to see if they could get Clowney. And it almost reminds me of when they tried to get Josh Norman. And actually, you'll love this story. When they tried to get Josh Norman, my ceiling had collapsed in my living room. <laughs> so, yeah, like it was my 25th or 26th birthday, too. So I remember that, day. actually. Yeah, I, I remember I was cooking and I see out of the corner of the eye, my eye all this stuff on the floor. And it was my literal ceiling on the floor. So just I'm saying that because I just remember the chaos of that. And thankfully, there was no ceilings that collapsed this week. But it was chaotic because you're just following this and you're like, the Saints don't have the money. How in the world could they pull this off? Like they've done weird things before, but never like this. And then all of a sudden you see this crazy report that they basically wanted to use another team's cap space to sign him. And I just thought that's about right. That's, that's pretty, that's kind of actually pretty awesome. I love that the Saints tried to do that. For people who don't know the specifics, apparently the story that came out, I think it was Ian Rapport reported it was that, 
they tried to essentially sell a draft pick to a different team in order to have that team sign Clowney and then trade him to the Saints. The, the cap is fake in the NFL. We know that. Yes, but the Saints, exactly. the Saints have exhausted all of their financial avenues. They've converted all of this space into signing bonuses. They have played the rules to the furthest they can go. They have pushed limits as far as they can go. They had to go one step further and try to do a sign and trade that the league has never seen and eventually vetoed. I tweeted this when it was happening, but this is very much like Adam Sandler and uncut gems sort of energy. I have seen dudes at like 4.30 in the morning going to an ATM in a casino in Vegas that have more self-control than the Saints have right now in terms of what they're trying to do with adding talent to this team. It is an incredible push and just like we are all in, let's do this kind of vibe to this team right now. And I actually kind of respect it. No, I love I love them for it. I love that they're always thinking we're going to do something totally crazy. And then usually the NFL comes in and they're like, nah, you're not going to do that crazy thing. This has <laughs> happened three times this summer. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Every time they come up with an idea, the NFL vetoes it. But the crazy part is that they weren't going to get them anyway because I guess another team got wind of what they were doing and thought, we're going to do this too. And so I, what were the teams involved? The Ravens and another team were going to do the exact same thing. So I guess once word spread, like maybe that's why the NFL – vetoed it because they realized teams were all going to jump on this because of course why wouldn't you and they just it's a bad precedent i mean i don't know is it it's kind of it kind of makes things it's a slippery slope it's a slippery slope if you start having people sell draft picks to do sign and trades it's a pandora's box of transactions well the osweiler thing could be considered on that line and then nothing really happened after that but yes i i agree with you in this situation once you realize how hey this is a way to get around our salary cap I could see why the NFL was like, nope, nope, nope. We're we're not opening that. Like, like you said, we're not opening that Pandora's box. So I think the funniest part beyond just the utter desperation, which again, I truly love, is that they don't need him. They did not need Jadevian Clowney. This is one of the deepest defensive lines, one of the deepest defenses, one of the deepest rosters in the entire league. It's almost egregious that they were going to make this move. So when I look at the Saints... I see, in my opinion, the most complete roster in football. Uh, I think that they're too deep at all the important positions. Even the offseason moves, going to get Emmanuel Sanders is a perfect kind of just slot him into a spot where you probably had a need but would have been okay if you didn't do it. I always like talking to people that cover teams because I think you guys can see the cracks in the foundation before other people do. I remember I was in Minnesota a couple years ago when I thought that the Vikings would be pretty good coming off of the Case Keenum season. And your friend, Courtney Cronin, was just telling me, yeah, the offensive line, it's a problem. The offensive line's a problem. And I was like, oh, whatever, they're fine. <laughs> and she was right. And, and it's you guys can see this stuff because you're so intimately familiar with the roster. You watch practice. You're talking to people. So if you were trying to figure out where the cracks in the foundation for this Saints team exist, what would hold them back from being a championship weekend or even a Super Bowl contender, where would you start? I would start first with the secondary. I know Drew Brees is the obvious ants like choice and we'll get to that, but the secondary, it always fails the Saints in the worst moments. And it's funny because we've been talking all training camp how great they look, how they have pass breakups and interceptions all the time. And I, I try to warn people it doesn't mean it's gonna carry over. So they basically have this new look secondary. They basically swapped out Von Bell for Malcolm Jenkins. They're going to be a nickel all the time. Uh, safety C.J. Gardner-Johnson or 
CD Deuce, that's what he's calling himself uh, these days, goes by either. He's basically- It is a locker room full of personalities, oh, yeah. I will say that. And he's probably their biggest one, and it's only his second year. So he's that says like, so much on a team with Cameron Jordan. Oh, my God. Oh, it's, uh, it's <laughs> CJ, it's probably one of the biggest personalities in that locker room, for sure. You need to go back and read the story I wrote last year about the pettiest things the players have ever done, like in their entire careers dating back to high school. <laughs> and, oh, my God, the stuff CJ was saying about what he did to taunt fans at Florida State uh, was hilarious. Uh, anyway, back to his on-the-field stuff, he... <laughs> He play, he plays like his personality. Like he's he's so aggressive, and uh, that's either really good or really bad. Sometimes it comes back to bite him because last year, like he he'll have these amazingly hard hits, and then one game he got a concussion because of it. And sometimes you'll get penalized. So it's kind of I think he could be the weak link. Like he could get burned a lot, or he could be awesome and make these great plays. So. That is really a toss-up, and I would be kind of concerned. I'd also be kind of concerned about Marcus Williams, who also has these moments of brilliance and then misses a huge tackle against the Niners in you know, a must-win game. Do you understand what you're saying, though? Just listen to yourself. This is the most nitpicky stuff. It's not the, nitpicky. The, it is so nitpicky. Okay, this when team- they, they lose a game because of it. We'll see. So this is such like very good beat writer by the book conversation. You just kind of seeing every little nook and cranny within this team where I sit here and say, really? Chauncey Gardner Johnson is your weak link? That's insane. This team is so good and so loaded that these are weaknesses when in actuality, they are not weaknesses at all. So if we can admit that you're probably going a little too far with the secondary concerns, let's get to Drew Brees. All right. Because I, if I I'm Saints if fans I, would disagree, but yes, yeah, so let's get to Drew Brees. Well, of course, because Saints fans have gotten burned so many times that they just have this th- this specter hanging over them. But people that can see this rationally, like I can, th- that's my approach and that's my mindset. So let's talk about Drew Brees because in the same vein, I think it's always interesting to me to see what people are writing about certain teams. And I think the amount of words spilled on Drew Brees' health and the Tom House workouts and how his deep ball looked from a lot of your colleagues was very telling about the conversation happening in New Orleans. Do you think that we're putting too much emphasis and too much attention on whether Drew Brees can last through February and take this team all the way to a Super Bowl? Or do you think that kind of the late season failings they've had in recent years are indicative that he tends to wear down near the end of the year? Well, it is part of the conversation. It has been for at least two years. It's all anyone talks about. But I I could see it both ways because while I think some of it is over-exaggerated, my colleague Larry Holder has done a lot of analytic stories about how maybe it's over-exaggerated to an extent. You can also look at his numbers and see that the downfield attempts have dropped every year for, I think, four years. Now, Breeze would say, well, that's just a product of the offense. And you could also say, well, they didn't have anyone to throw it too deep. They had Ted Ginn and Breeze would throw it to him deep and he would drop it. So whose fault is that? But it's interesting because it was talked about so much at the beginning of the summer. I almost started this conspiracy theory in my head that they talked about it to get defenses to think his arm is a lot better than it is. But hey, I did see him throw a couple of deep balls in practice that went 50 yards and looked beautiful. So, I mean, it's not not the same thing as doing it with a pass rush and doing it in November, but 
hey, I mean, he could do it. But yeah, I, they're going to have to really try to figure out how to get him through the season. And that's what, why they did so much work on their offensive line. They, they want Breeze standing upright in December, which is also when he played his best ball last year, by the way. Not in January, but in December, yeah. He was so good near the end of the year when he came back. Their offense was just ridiculously efficient. And if you look at the air yard stuff, yeah, like that's real. You know, he was 6.7 intended air yards per attempt last year, 5.2 per completion. Both of those are near the bottom of the league. But guess who else was near the bottom of the league? Teddy Bridgewater. I think it was as much a product of the offense as it was anything physical going on with Breeze. And if you just think about the pass catchers they have on that team, it's a lot of guys who are really good at exploiting space, but not anybody who's a burner. Michael Thomas is not going to catch a lot of 30-yard bombs. The same goes for Jared Cook and for Alvin Kamara. It's just not how they're built. And they're so good at exploiting space horizontally and understanding how to create windows in a compressed field that it doesn't always matter for them. So I'm not super concerned. I am actually have more questions about the offensive line because they did make some additions on in that area. But I'm kind of like I'm, I don't know. I'm a bit confused about the Andrews Pete contract. It just seems like money you didn't need to spend when you're up against the cap. I think that just shifting McCoy over to guard and popping Ruiz in there isn't necessarily a given, even if you feel good about him. So I think it's hard to say that this because the tackles are so good and it's been a strength for them. But I'm more concerned about how that group gels than pretty much every other group on the roster. Do you think that's misguided? No, I, I think it's totally valid concern, and it was their main concern in the offseason. The interior of the line just looked old and slow, and I, I think that they weren't happy with Larry Warford and his weight, so that's one reason he got cut and replaced by Ruiz. And, you know, Andres Pete wouldn't say this. Well, he wasn't explicitly asked this, but all of a sudden he shows up to camp and he – looks so much slimmer and he said he only lost yeah he's like oh i lost 10 to 15 pounds and i didn't do anything different i don't believe that so uh, i was like if you lost 10 to 15 pounds on that frame we wouldn't even notice you lost way more than that (laughs) i mean like alignment losing 10 pounds tron armstead lost 26 pounds in a week last year when he was sick and i didn't even notice so i didn't know that so Anyway, I don't believe him, but my point is, I wonder if the Saints said, hey, we're going to give you this contract, but you need to lose weight because we need to get more athletic in the interior of the line to help out Breeze. So, I don't know, but I mean, I, I think they, yeah, I think it's an upgrade. Not Pete, uh, Ruiz. I think Ruiz is going to be an upgrade. Ruiz is starting at guard and McCoy is staying at center. Oh, yeah, sorry. I didn't explain that. So, Ruiz got hurt in training camp, and my assumption, he's still not practicing, is that McCoy is just going to end up being the center because Ruiz almost never got to take snaps there. Eventually, Ruiz will probably be the center, but... See, I like that things. better. I th- I like that better. I would much rather be a little bit worse in terms of the ceiling with those two guys and keep your center in place who played really well last year. If you're really trying to maximize this window, I would minimize the amount of moving parts you have on the interior, even if you think each guy is better suited for the other position, if that makes sense. I I just don't like playing with positions when you have a proven quantity, especially at the linchpin of your offensive line. And I thought McCoy was awesome last year. I put him second team all pro. I was extremely impressed with how he played as a rookie. Yeah, I totally agree. Like someone asked me the other day, well, is Ruiz going to move back to center in a few weeks when he presumably comes back? And I said, there's just no point. Like, yeah, that can be your end game. But why at this point you are, everything had to go right for him to be the starting center. And, 
You had this compressed training camp. You needed him on the field as many reps as possible, and it just didn't happen. So put McCoy there. He knows what he's doing. Put Ruiz at guard or, or Nick Easton if you don't feel comfortable with Ruiz coming back yet. And just go with that. And, yeah, back to Andres Pete. I I agree that everyone thought that was a weird contract, but I think they just saw the options out there, and they thought, oh, no, we need someone at guard because they were planning to get rid of Larry Warford. So they kind of overpaid to keep some consistency there. But I don't know. He's He's definitely the weak link of the offensive line for sure. Is the vibe there pretty much if we don't do it now, we're completely screwed? Like, it just it, does everyone know that kind of the salary cap resources hellscape is on the horizon? And if Breeze leaves, it doesn't matter anyway. I, with this team, they probably have some plan to like circumnavigate this salary cap <laughs> next year. They do not seem concerned about it. And so, if Breeze is on the team next year, that's $36 million in cap space. And well, actually, I think he, it automatically voids in 22. So they would have to fix that. And, and if he's not on the team, it's $22 million in dead money, I think, or something like that. So, oh boy, that's, that is going to be a challenge. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do, but I look forward to seeing that happen. But yeah, it just I mean, seems it's like Super this Bowl is it. Yeah. It seems like this is the last ride. I mean, I would be so surprised. If you're Drew Brees, as much as he loves football and loves, you know, Drew Brees is a weird guy who really <laughs> loves the like the regiment, the regimented nature of it all. And I understand walking away from that is probably strange. But when they're going to pay you millions of dollars to sit in a booth and watch football instead of getting hit by by men much bigger than you, I think that's there's a pull there. Ask Tony Romo. He's playing a lot of golf right now. Absolutely. And he even said today, I mean, he's standing in the Zoom call and it's <laughs> not a jab and breeze, but you know, every year he looks a little older because he's finally giving up on the hairline and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's very close cropped now. And he, he said, I'm living on borrowed time now. And if that doesn't mean it's his last year, it's a strong hint that it's, it's coming very soon. Uh, so yeah, I think w- for him, Pulling his family away to do this has started to really get to him because in the off season they live in San Diego, so That's you're asking, right. you know, you're asking the kids to go to two different schools, and the way he plays, and you said it a second ago, he loves football so much, and he loves his regiment, and he feels like he has to do all that to keep playing at the same level. And every year you get older, it's not easier; it's harder. It's more time, and it's more time away from his family. And I think he just knows. Hey, I can't do this to them forever. My kids are growing up. So if it's not this year, I guarantee you it's next year. Um, But it definitely feels like this year. Let's move on to another older regimented quarterback that is in very (laughs) new surroundings. And let's talk about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So you obviously, you've written about this. You're super familiar just kind of with what being entrenched with an organization for a decade and a half does for a quarterback. I mean, Brees sits in the same chair every day. It's the same drive every day. And that the comfort level there and the communication with that he has with Sean Payton and everything else, it really feeds a lot of his success. With Tom Brady kind of walking into new surroundings, what do you think is going to be the biggest adjustment for somebody going from the same voices for more than a decade to a new set of coaches, a new offense, everything? That's a great question. I, I think you have seen in the past that it can actually be a great thing for a player. Uh, when Brett Favre joined the Vikings, like he, it was 
you saw like a new quarterback. Like he he was great, although I guess he didn't go directly from Green Bay to Minnesota. But with Brady, I think it's just with a coach and a quarterback that have been together that long, you know exactly what the other one's going to say before you even finish saying it. I mean, it's like they're just like Breeze and Peyton are basically on the same wavelength all the time. When they go to the sideline, they barely, probably barely even have to speak because they already know what the other one wants. Now Brady is just, he, it's a totally new type of relationship with his head coach. Just so many things. Like you said, like Breeze has been stretching in the same spot in the Saints indoor practice facility for over a decade now. And so Brady's learning all these new things and he's kind of got to think about that. So it's not just, it's more thinking than he's used to. Because it, I, over time, it just becomes ingrained in your brain. But, I mean, also, he seems a lot more lighthearted than he yes. was. Yeah, I think he's having a great time. I think he's loving it. I, I really yeah, do. I think he's having a lot of fun. And, and Those that, that weird letters to his parents, though, on Instagram. I'm not sure how I feel about that with Comic Sans. There, oh there's a God. lot of stuff going on there that I would love to talk to a psychiatrist about what their opinion of that is. But we, we don't have enough time to dig into that right now or enough doctorate degrees to properly dig into it. Can you imagine if Bree starts started doing something like that? Like, No, I could not. <laughs> I think that says a lot. I, I could not imagine him doing that. I think that's the difference between him and Tom Brady. I don't think I could imagine Brady doing it either two years ago. But oh, I don't know. Bra- Bra- there's some weird stuff on the table with Tom Brady that I don't think Breeze would ever go to. That's true. So That's I would. So I think Ted Wynn wrote a great piece about it on the Athletic about just the language barrier from when you move between systems and how the streamlined communication is going to change. And I think that is the biggest question I have about the Buccaneers' offense: is what pieces are taken from the Bucks approach, what t- pieces are taken from the Patriots approach. Because when you've had other quarterbacks switch systems before, you know, Peyton Manning essentially brought the Colts offense with him to Denver. I mean, they really tried to do everything they could to make him comfortable. But there are so many guys coming back for that Bucks offense, and I think that they were so good in so many ways last year. You also want to make the entire supporting cast comfortable. So I... Kind of seeing what this amalgam of Brady's preferences and Arian's preferences is going to be, whether that's more two tight end sets, even though they like to spread it out last year, whether that's shorter passes, even though the, Winston had the longest air yards per target in the NFL last year, whether that's more play action, which Brady has often been at about a quarter of his att- a quarter of dropbacks he's used play action in his career on average. The Arians teams are typically near the bottom of the league. So how all of this stuff meshes together, I don't think there's any way for us to know before the season actually gets started. Yeah, especially now that we haven't gotten to even see them in one preseason game. Exactly. It's like the the Bucks are a total mystery to me, which is weird because, you know, you, you get so, even covering these teams, you get so comfortable knowing pretty much everything about the teams that your team, you cover faces all the time. And now I'm just thinking, like, I don't know what they're going to look like. And someone asked me the other day, uh, do you think it's going to be more of same thing? Like what Brady looked like in New England? Are they going to are they going to air it out a lot like they did before? And I said, well, he's got these great weapons. This scout I talked to the other day said, I mean, you so many people are saying, well, Brady is in decline because of his numbers. But how much of that was just the talent level and the receivers in New England? I don't know. I mean. He's got some pretty good talent around him this week, but uh, 
Mike, I don't know if Mike Evans is going to play, but regardless, I'm I'm so intrigued. I, I just I don't I don't feel like I know this team, and it's interesting to watch. I think Tom Brady has entered a phase of his career where he can no longer truly elevate the players around him. I think he can be fine, but he's not going to lift them up that much. The thing about Tampa is he doesn't need to. They can lift him up. The the going from Jameis Winston to Tom Brady is going from a quarterback that was systematically sabotaging your ability to be a good offense to a quarterback that's never going to put you in bad positions. And I think that's okay. A quarterback that's going to make the right choices, be smart with the ball, and just allow this offense to function is all they need. It happens to be the greatest quarterback ever, so we have these outsized expectations. But I think if he just keeps the train on the tracks, they're going to be really good. I mean, every single spot on this offense, every single unit, in my opinion, is solid to a strength. The running backs are whatever. They're good enough to get them where they want to go. The receiving core and the weapons overall, in my opinion, is the best group in the league. Their 12 personnel with OJ Howard, Gronk, Chris Godwin, and Mike Evans is unlike any collection of receivers that that Brady has played with since 2007. As long as he's not throwing the ball to the other team consistently, which he's never done, I don't see how this team isn't a top 10 offense if he stays healthy. Yeah, I I think that's why I think this weekend is just going to be a shootout. I proposed some crazy number like 42 to 36 and everyone keeps saying, wow, you're really going there. And I'm like, I I could totally see it. I could just see Breeze airing it out with his new weapons. I could see Brady doing the same thing. The defenses can't keep up and it ends up just being a situation where they're just scoring touchdowns the whole game. Of course, I'm going to be wrong now that I've said that out loud, <laughs> but uh, I could absolutely see it. But it might take, I don't know, and maybe it'll take a little longer for for Brady and his offense to gel, but heck, they've been playing together all summer, so so maybe not. So Brady and the offense are, are definitely what make the Bucks intriguing, but I think their defense is what potentially makes them scary in the NFC. Because you look at what this group did last year, they went from being a truly terrible group when Mike Smith was there to being a team that played like a top 10 defense. I mean, the run defense was really, really good, but their pass defense was in the top 12. And I could see that continuing this year. I think that Todd Bowles is a great coordinator. You saw what happened when they had those younger corners kind of uh, step into a more prominent role last year, whether that was Sean uh, Murphy bunting or whether it was, you know, Jamel Dean, those guys being a bigger part of the defense. I think that getting Jason Pierre Paul back, what they have up front, you can expect another step forward from Devin White in his second year. Levante David has been underrated for like 15 years. Like for before I was covering the league, he was somebody that people didn't talk enough about. I just think this group, when you consider the trajectory when the youth and everything else, and you drop Antoine Winfield Jr. into the mix, who I absolutely love and I think is perfect for this team, it just feels like they could keep that up. And if this is a top 10-ish defense and you consider the talent that they have on offense, I absolutely think they're going to be in the mix to win the division and in the mix to be a real dangerous playoff team. Wow, you are you are really buying in on the Bucks. I, I like am, it. man. I, I, this is not. Uh, this is familiar territory for me, though. I, I've picked the Bucks to make the playoffs like every single year I've had a podcast going back to about 2013, and I'm often wrong. So if you're a Bucks fan, this should absolutely scare you. See, I'm I'm always the skeptic. Like I kept saying, oh, I've seen this before. Everyone thought the Browns were going to win the Super Bowl after they had some free agent additions. Everyone thought the Bucks in 2013 were going to be great, and they stunk. 
because you just never know how these free agents are going to gel together. Like you could have the most talented team of free agents ever, but it doesn't mean they're going to play as a team. So I'm a little skeptical, but not that skeptical. Like I definitely think the Bucks are good enough to make a run for the division at least, um, or at least the second team in the division. I mean, I, I still would pick the Saints to win the division. But, um, yeah, I mean, their defense, their front seven is solid. Cornerbacks, I think that's – I think you're higher on them than I are, I are than I am. But, I mean, you really can't beat that front seven. And I think they could push the Saints around a little bit uh, this weekend. I think you got to be hoping that the younger guys take another step. You know, they play a lot of man coverage. They blitz a lot. And that formula worked out for them. And if those guys just kind of – develop in the way you'd hope second year players develop and Winfield can be kind of a disruptor right away. I think that group could work out well. You know, obviously, you know, Shaquille Barrett's not going to have the season he had last year, but he doesn't need to. He just needs to be solid when you consider the other players they have. And I think one of the main differences between the Bucks as a hyped up team and a team like the Browns or other teams that we've been excited about in the past, their offensive lines have been a weakness. We often get too excited about teams that have really good skill position players and bad lines. And I think the talent that the Bucs have up front, Tristan Wirfs, their first round pick, has apparently looked apart from day one. And Brady does such a good job to make his offensive line look better in pass protection. That is not going to be a weakness for this team in the way that it often is for teams that we get excited about. So it's just hard for me to find personnel weaknesses and Weaknesses in the most important positions. I have a lot more faith in Tom Brady and Bruce Arians, even at this stage of their career, than I have in Freddie Kitchens and Baker Mayfield. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think anyone who's really paying attention to when the Browns were assembling their free agents were remembering just where they were months before and thinking, well, they still have a lot of different personalities in that room. Like we don't know if they're if they struggle. How much are they going to clash? And then lo and behold, that's basically what happened. Whereas Tom Brady, I mean, you you trust Tom Brady to be able to, to lead this team. You know that's what he can do. You know that, like you said, I mean, he's elevated teams a million times before. And whether or not he can do it now, I, I don't know. But personality-wise, that's not an addition you worry about. At least I wouldn't. So, yeah, well, it is a little different than – than Freddie Kitchens and, and Baker Mayfield and, you know, just adding all these major personalities to the roster. I think that Tom Brady doesn't need to elevate the Bucks. I think he needs to stabilize them. And I think that is a key distinction to make at this point in his career. You look at the numbers, the Patriots had 0.076 turnovers per drive last year. It was the third lowest mark in the league after the Saints and the uh, Packers, which I love that all of these old quarterbacks are just not throwing the ball away. They, they know what they're doing at this rate. Shockingly, the Bucks were 32nd at .206. It was literally three times as often they turned the ball over last year compared to what the Patriots did. They had the worst starting field position in the league for their defense because of that. I think Jameis threw like 7% of the total interceptions in the NFL last year, according to Football Outsiders. Just wow. crazy numbers. 30, All 30, you right? have to do is just be okay. Just be Keep, again, just keep the train on the tracks. And I have the utmost faith in his ability to do that. I also think that Chris Godwin is going to catch 10,000 passes that are like six yards past the line of scrimmage, but that's a whole different conversation. All hey, right. Hey, as long as it works, right? Who cares how yeah, far it goes? That's all that matters. Before we get to the Falcons, I want to take a break to talk about Roman. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. 
Usually, men just brush it off or blame themselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo, or they avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it's easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash Maze, that's my last name, M-A-Y-S, and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash Maze, M-A-Y-S, today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. That's GetRoman.com slash Maze. GetRoman.com slash M-A-Y-S. For all the excitement I have about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a team that it's a little harder to get excited about, I just don't have strong feelings about them either way, are the Atlanta Falcons. I had a fantasy draft this week, and someone asked during the draft if I thought the Falcons were going to be good, and I genuinely did not have an answer for them. I just don't know. It just feels like this is the same movie that we've seen several times with this team, where they spend so much money on offense, and if you look at it again, they're fifth in percentage of the cap spent on offense. A lot of that is Matt Ryan and Julio, but that formula works for them. It is a stabilizing factor in making this team relevant every year because their floor on offense with those guys is so high. And it seems like every season we're saying, all right, the offense is probably going to be pretty good. They need those young defensive players to kind of take a jump. And we're in the same boat again. And, and I just don't know when you consider other teams that are up against the cap and have all these expensive players if this Falcons roster stacks up. So when you're just kind of thinking about your general feelings about Atlanta and kind of where they sit in the NFC, what do you see? I always say I feel like the Falcons have just gotten lost in these new additions all the rest of the NFC South teams made, and they're just kind of there. Like They're the same team they were last year, except they have Todd Gurley now, and no one knows how he's going to perform. So it's it's weird. Like last year, yeah, they're seven and nine. They were they were okay. I mean, they were an okay team, not terrible, not great. That's kind of the definition of seven and nine. Enough to compete with some of these NFC South teams. I mean, they gave the Saints a, a run for their money for sure. But I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's how you feel, but I just kind of feel like they really aren't much different than we saw them at the end of 2019. I don't think, and not much different than we saw them at the end of 2018 or 2017. I mean, I just think that you switch out the names, but the story is similar, right? So let's switch out Steve Sarkeesian for Dirk Cutter at offense coordinator. Okay. Let's switch out the corner we need to really kind of get hot and play well. Switch AJ Terrell in for Isaiah Oliver. Switch the highly drafted pass rusher that we need more production from, from Vic Beasley to Tack McKinley. It just feels like all of this stuff is a familiar conversation. And in the end, it leaves Atlanta in a very similar place. And what's changed is the defensive players who were once young and cheap are now not as young and much more expensive when you think about Deion Jones and Grady Jarrett. Now Dan Quinn has kind of ceded control of that defense over to Raheem Morris. They were much better in the second half of the year. How much of that holds? So again, it just feels like ah, the, the offense will be good. You know, We'll have a top 10 unit, especially because the passing game is pretty reliable. I think the offensive line will be better with Lindstrom coming back from injury. Caleb McGarry, hopefully the two guys they drafted in the first round will be better 
in year two than they were last season. That protection will allow their downfield passing game to be a little bit better. But the offense, I'm not worried about. Again, it just seems like what is the defense going to be and is it going to be good enough for this team to kind of bump up against the best teams in the NFC? And I just don't know if it is. Well, I also think they've been unlucky with injuries. I can't remember as much last year, but I do remember in 2018, they were decimated with injuries by the end of September. They were, it was basically so bad. I think it was just kind of already conceded early in that season. They weren't going to be able to do much. So I, I don't know if that was the case last year, but I thought they still did have some injury issues too. So, I mean, I guess you could argue, well, if, if everyone's healthy, but you could say that about literally any other team in injury luck, that if they were healthy, they would make a run. So I They got know. decimated in the secondary last year. That's where they really, really got just destroyed. Keanu Neal was out for most of the season. Right. I think him getting back, him coming back healthy is going to be big for them. I, Ricardo Allen, same deal, who I think is a really nice player. I feel like the secondary and just the overall defensive improvement from last year, it could hold. And if if AJ Terrell hits the ground running, if they get something from Marlon Davidson and is another interior pass rusher, if you think Raheem Morris is just an upgrade as a defensive play caller and that success carries over, then this team could be interesting because I do think the offense will be a little bit better than it was last year. And I think that the additions they made going to get Hayden Hurst and Todd Gurley, familiar names that aren't that exciting. But I think the plug-and-play nature of what they are in that system is going to allow that team to be pretty good. I don't think they're going to be bad. I just think that they're familiar, and for that reason, they lack excitement. It's so easy for them to not generate excitement when, like I said, like the three other teams in the same division are just doing these crazy things. I mean, I guess the Saints didn't really do too much in the offseason, but I mean, the Bucs dominated the offseason, and then the Panthers made so many changes that you know, it's hard to generate excitement when you're like, well, I mean, they're healthy now. Uh, They added some, I mean, even the Todd Gurley signing kind of just, didn't it feel like it flew under the radar in the midst of all that? A little bit. I mean, that's the thing. And like they traded a second round pick for Hayden Hurst, which I think is smart. You know, if you want to keep the continuity of your offense together, I think the Hurst is kind of the perfect guy to replicate what Austin Hooper could do for you in that scheme. Reliable, you know, not a dynamic athlete, but somebody that will catch the ball when you throw it to him and get the yards that are there. And if you consider those pieces and everything coming back and the the combination of Julio and Calvin Ridley, who I think are both excellent players, obviously Julio is an entirely different stratosphere. And then the offensive line getting better. I like that group. I just, I don't know. It feels like this team could absolutely be 10 and six kind of hanging around, but I don't think people are kind of talking about them in that way. Cause like you said, there's so many teams with more buzzworthy things going on. On a side note, Todd Gurley is only 26. The way people talk about him, you would think he's like 34. It's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. I, I just the churn of running backs in the NFL and how recently Todd Gurley was one of the most visible talked about celebrated players in the league, I think speaks to that position and just how fleeting those moments really are. So why we're seeing what we're seeing with Alvin Kamara, you've got to get your money when you can get your money because it could be over so fast, especially at that position. But um, yeah, he also played 15 games, which also didn't seem to be the case from the way people talk about him. So that is, that's the thing I'm looking at. That's what I'm intrigued about. We already know, like you said, Julio's in another stratosphere. I mean, he is who he is. He's great. Gurley was great. Can he be great again? And if he can, does does that change their offense significantly? I mean, 
you get a great running back and it can definitely do wonders. So yeah, they're, they're a team that sometimes just really surprises you either way. I mean, if they go 10 and six, wouldn't really be totally surprised. If they go seven and nine, wouldn't be surprised either. They're just one of those teams that could kind of hang, could kind of swing both ways. And you've seen that the last few years. I think their floor, barring a Matt Ryan injury, is very high. And I think that's why they're going to hover around 500 no matter what if he's healthy. And it's just a matter of certain little things going right for them. Their pass rush was bad again last season. They ranked 28th in adjusted sack rate, which is it's the same old story with them. They've had so much trouble getting after the quarterback. They went, they paid Dante Fowler to kind of fix that. So if you can get a little bit more pop in the front four with Fowler, you have Grady Jarrett, who's an all-pro player. Deion Jones comes back. Keanu Neal comes back. Ricardo Allen comes back. You get more from A.J. Terrell than maybe people would think. I think that there's a path for this team. I just don't know how often they follow that path. Before we get to the Panthers, I want to tell you guys about DraftKings. Now is the time to celebrate. Football is finally back. And DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports, has millions of reasons why you should be excited. To kick off the football season, DraftKings is giving new users a free shot at a $1 million top prize with a total of $3 million up for grabs for this Thursday's football contest. Getting in on Thursday's single game showdown is easy. All you have to do is download DraftKings using promo code MAYS. That's my last name, M-A-Y-S. Draft six players from the season opener, stay under the salary cap, and see how your team stacks up against the competition. So head to the app now to start making it rain. Plus, new users who sign up today on DraftKings using code MAZE will receive a free shot at the $1 million top prize with your first deposit. Nothing adds to the sweat of watching the game like having a shot at a $1 million payday. Download the DraftKings app now and use code MAZE. For a limited time, new users can get a free shot at the $1 million top prize and $3 million in total prizes. Don't miss this extra special week one bonus. Enter code MAZE to get a free shot at the $1 million top prize with your first deposit. That's code M-A-Y-S, only at DraftKings. Make it rain. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. All right. Let's get to a team that is not familiar and, and has, is not the same old story because there is so much turnover with the other team in this division that it's almost hard to kind of comprehend and that is the Carolina Panthers. So I was reading the work that Joe Person was doing to preview this team on The Athletic. It is unbelievable how much of the roster is different and just how much change has occurred there in year one under Matt Rule. I mean, it's almost hard to predict them because or preview them because you don't know what the scheme is going to look like on defense. Phil Snow, their defensive coordinator, has been with Rule at all of his college stops. They've done a bunch of different stuff. Rule has been different systematically at Baylor and at Temple. They just kind of do what their personnel does well. Really, one of the only known quantities we've seen in both the NFL and in college is what Joe Brady did with the with LSU last year. So I'm interested to ask you, as somebody who's very familiar with LSU football and very familiar with Teddy Bridgewater, how do you see the marriage of this Joe Brady offense and Teddy Bridgewater at quarterback kind of working out? Well, it's been so long, I feel like, since Teddy had an offense that was his offense. Like I, You can almost write through what he did with the Saints last year because that wasn't his offense. But is that who he is? Is he kind of a guy that is a 
game manager type that you just put in there and say, don't make, don't make any mistakes, and we're good. Exactly what he did in the five games they went undefeated with the Saints. There was only one game against the Bucks where he, I guess, aired it out, so to speak. But I don't even know if that's the right term. They put up a lot of points. So I don't know. I'm, I'm a little skeptical um, just about how Bridgewater is, is going to do in, in his first, I've, I guess, like true starting role. And how many years has it been? Two, oh, it's three? 2016, I think it was, yeah. when, he, is, when he got yeah. hurt. So it would have been 2015 was his last yeah, time as a starter. it's been a long time, which is, you know, the greatest story, by the way. I, I, I love Teddy as a person, and I love that he's gotten this chance. I mean, I just think that's such an unbelievable story, and it speaks to how hard he works. And, you know, he deserves this shot. But <laughs> football-wise, I, I don't know. I, I just... I, I don't see I don't I don't see necessarily like him going in there and Brady installing this offense where he's just going to be you know super aggressive or, or throwing deep all the time I, I can't see it but you know we actually don't know that much about how Brady would call an NFL game we we got one year of Brady in college he was with the Saints but you know he was an assistant back then so that is interesting. It goes back into the, how much do we really know about this team? And the answer is not much. Well, you try to find kind of breadcrumbs, right? With like personnel yeah. choices. And you look at it, and that's why I'm kind of confused about what I should expect. Because when you look at LSU's offense, you know they were a vertical team, but it's not full of burners. You know, Justin Jefferson isn't that kind of guy. They used a lot of empty sets, a lot of five-man protections, getting guys out in routes, and really just using all inches of the field, both horizontally and vertically. So I that makes sense, right? You plug Christian McCaffrey into that supercharged Clyde Edwards-Hilaire role. You really stretch him horizontally. You can get him out in the flat, really use him as a receiver as kind of a staple of your offense. But then you look at the rest of the receiving talent in this team, and they added burners. I mean, you have DJ Moore, who's good after the catch, but also is a vertical threat. Robbie Anderson, who just runs fast, which, you know, that's great to have, but does it mesh well with Teddy. And Curtis Samuel is another guy who does great work outside the numbers and just down the field if you are, have a quarterback that can take advantage of that. So how does that mesh with Teddy's skill set? And then are you going to be able to get as many guys out in routes as Joe Brady liked to in LSU with an offensive line that has some question marks. You know, Okun comes over from the Chargers. He's fine. He's not the greatest left tackle in the world. I think that the rest of that group is has a lot to be desired. So I just don't know what this offense is going to look like, even based on the players they've assembled. And I'm interested because it just feels like this is a middle ground year in, in, in a longer rebuilding process. But I wonder why they went out and got Teddy Bridgewater with that. So I don't know. It's There's a lot of things that seem conflicting with this team. And it, it's going to take a while to kind of iron out those details. Well, I guess, I'm, I'm going to laugh uh, at this pun. But I guess you could... Bridgewater is kind of... It could be the bridge quarterback to someone Look else. Look at and, you. Uh, excellently done. I was laughing at myself when I said it. But... I'm very proud of you. He might be like, despite all the money they're paying him this year, is he just the bridge guy, like, or to something else? Because no one really expects the Panthers to be that good this year, and if they are, it's a totally pleasant surprise. But I, I think with Teddy, it's kind of a uh, we'll test it out and see how this goes. But it's not necessarily a thing where he's 
you know, the de facto starter for the next three years unless he just goes out and kills it. Uh, I don't know. That was kind of my impression when it was signed. The Panthers chose to not go the route that the Jaguars went, right? So the Jaguars just said, eh, whatever. We're, we're going to roll with Minshew. We don't need to go spend money on a quarterback because it doesn't matter how many games we win. The Panthers elected to have an option rather than just rolling with Will Greer, signing a right. guy off the street for $2 million a year, whatever. You, you could have gone cheaper if you wanted to. True. They chose not to. They, they went and paid for quarterback, which is fine. I mean, I, I don't think that's a bad decision by any stretch, but it's a different approach to a rebuilding process. I think that... Having a guy in the building that can allow you to be a not terrible team and a quarterback that allows you to function is good for the overall health of your franchise. So I get it. I'm just not sure exactly what it looks like. On defense, there is no such stability. We are going to be rolling with K1 Short, Shaq Thompson, and a bunch of kids. And that's okay. Uh, that is totally fine. I think the overall youth movement and the speed movement that they have pursued on that side of the ball with Troy Pride, probably starting at corner of their fourth-round pick, Jeremy Chin, their second-round pick, probably getting into the mix at some point. They tried to get as athletic as possible and just kind of see how it works. So I think that group is going to have a lot of growing pains, especially in the secondary. But if you're going to have a youth movement, if you're going to rebuild, I can completely understand why this is the way you'd want to do it. Well, Eli Apple was probably their their best cornerback, yes. right? And he's already on Which IR. Which says a lot, by the way. Yes. No, it does. And he's already on IR. I don't know when he was placed on IR, though. I don't know. It if was it, recent. I think it was in the past week. And I think that pride kind of elevated to that role with Apple right. being out. Well, I don't know if it was... It was probably after the cut to 53. And I only say that because the IR rules are like so crazy now. You could come back in three weeks. But I don't know if it matters if you got IR'd before the cut to 53 this year. But I think it was after, so I think it's irrelevant. So I guess it doesn't necessarily mean the season is over, uh, which is so weird. All these new rules are crazy. But I know. Every time the, I see a guy going on IR, I'm like, oh, God. And then I remember he can come back in three weeks. It just You have to kind yeah. of retrain your brain to how you're going to react to those things. Like, oh, but, they're done. Yeah. Wait, no, they might not be. Obviously, the, the rule contract, I mean, it's so long. They're clearly going to give him a lot of space to kind of remake this in his image. He's done a great job of it at multiple spots in college. I mean, when you consider the kind of the retooling and revamping he did at both Temple and Baylor, it all makes sense. I mean, I understand why they went with him. I just think that there's so much of an unknown. It's kind of trying, it's kind of difficult to project what this team is going to be this season, let alone beyond it. Right. Absolutely. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying about Brady. Like, there's, so much unknown with him, even though, yeah, I mean, even though LSU would always say he's not the offensive coordinator at LSU, he was the one calling the plays whenever the camera flashed over to the booth. I mean, so you saw what he did or significantly contributed to with that offense in just a year. So how does that translate to the NFL? Does it translate? Is he truly the wonder kid or is he a one-year wonder? Don't know, but like like you said, Super intrigued to find out. I think even if the Panthers aren't great this year, that I could see them rebounding within a year and kind of starting an upward trajectory. But it's it's just a big question mark, even more so than the Bucks. At least with the Bucks, you know what you're getting out of these free agents they added. And we know what Brady's like. You know what Gronk is like. Their only question is, do they decline as they're aging? I mean, the, the Panthers, there's so many young guys. It's it's so hard to predict, but it certainly makes it fun. 
I think a lot of their process I can support. Uh, the, the McCaffrey contract is an entirely different conversation. I, going down that road of running back value again is silly. I think he's a nice player. I can understand why you'd want to have a face of your franchise as Cam Newton and Luke Keekley leave. You know, giving out that contract is a lot more than trying to figure out how much value you can squeeze out of one running back. But after that, aside from that, I think you can totally get on board with all the other moves they've made. I mean, if you're going to try to find lightning in a bottle when it comes to a play caller, I think that Joe Brady is a really smart place to look. So we'll see what happens this year. But I do think that the choices they've made so far and the overall kind of direction and the arrow makes sense for a team that's really trying to find itself again. Yeah, it makes total sense. They got Joe Brady. Hey, even if you don't know how it's going to go, at least you're taking that chance and it might turn out to be brilliant. So, All right, moment of truth here. Who is winning the NFC South? I I still have to go with the Saints. I just really think they're the most talented team top to bottom. And I would say the Bucs would, would come in second. I am with you. I don't want to step on anything more than that because we're going to chat about uh, playoff predictions and awards and everything else with Lindsey Jones here in a second. But I do think the Bucks win the NFC South. Kat, thank you extreme. Thank you so so much for doing this. It's uh, it's fun to be working with you. I'm really looking forward to this. It's we've known each other for a long time. This is our first run as coworkers, and uh, it's going to be a fun year. I'm sure I will be bugging you about Chauncey Gardner Johnson here before long when he's playing great. You know what? I will be happy to be wrong as long as it means in a couple of months we're sitting here still talking about what's happening on the field. So excited to be doing this, and thanks for having me on. Of course, talk to you soon. Joining me now is Lindsay Jones. Lindsay, I didn't feel like we'd be able to properly preview the season without doing some awards and without handing them out. So we brought you on to do that because I just feel like we should be giving people what they're going to get every Thursday here. No reason to you know kind of wait until week one to do this. Yeah, let's get into it um, for predictions that are sure to be wrong. Oh, all of them are going to be wrong. I was thinking of my seventh playoff team in the NFC. It's like, does it really matter? I could literally name any team and it won't matter a month from now. But let's before we get into the teams that we think are going to make the playoffs, before we get into who's going to win the Super Bowl, all that, let's do some player and coach awards first. So let's start with Offensive Rookie of the Year. It feels like this is kind of condensed to like a two or three man field. And I know who I feel pretty strongly about. Who is your pick to win Offensive Rookie of the Year? Yeah, I mean, I think this award tends to skew very heavily towards two positions, uh, quarterback and running back. So the top two guys on my list are Joe Burrow and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. I'm going with Burrow because I think, you know, even if he has like a decent season, I mean, he doesn't need to be a pro bowler, he doesn't need to pass for 5,000 yards. But if he has a good season, plays 16 games and makes the Bengals somewhat respectable, I think he'd be, you know, the odds on favorite to win that award. We were talking about it with Shield during the AFC North preview. I just think that they're set up to be okay from day one. I have so much faith in him. I feel like he's such a good prospect. The things he does really well, I think, are easily going to translate to the NFL and show up pretty quickly. Their skill position talent's kind of fun. He's got guys to throw to. It's not like the cupboard is bare. So I think if he's the guy I believe him to be, then he's going to be able to kind of run away with this, even if Clyde Edwards-Slayer has a pretty decent season. Yeah, and I think the one kind of outside the box pick would be Jerry Judy. And we talked a lot about him on our AFC West preview pod just because he's so refined, so ready to play well week one. But it's really hard for a a wide receiver to win that Offensive Rookie of the Year award. Yeah, I also think that the target share there is going to be a little bit muddled. Like last year, you know, Terry McLaurin kind of hit the ground running full speed because there wasn't really anybody to 
challenge him for work. I think Keenan Allen is another rookie receiver that did the same thing. You know, Odell Beckham was really good right away. But these are guys that were kind of instantly the number one target on their team. And with Cortland Sutton being there and just kind of all the other guys they have, I'm just not sure he's going to vacuum up enough targets to really challenge the other guys that could win this award. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, it's such a stat driven award. I mean, really all these categories are. That's why running backs can win it because it's all about numbers you put up. Absolutely. All right. Let's get to defensive rookie. This one, I just have no feel for these. I often went with linebackers in the past because if you rack up tackles for the same reason that running backs racking up yards could win it. But I just feel like Chase Young is so much better than all the other defensive players in this draft. That's who I'm going with. Yeah, same. I mean, he he was who I picked for our staff picks, the, the uh, file that came out earlier this week. You know, I think he's the most likely guy to have the most sacks of any rookie. And yeah, it's all about either interceptions. If there's a rookie who all of a sudden has, you know, five picks, then he's going to be at that top of that category or, you know, a Darius Leonard type of situation from a couple of years ago. But I think Chase Young is the clear favorite here. Um, he's going to be their best defensive player probably in Washington, which is kind of crazy to say as a rookie. But yeah, I mean, if I were to bet on these things, I'd, I'd take whatever those Chase Young odds are right now. The one I like, we're going to talk about, we talked about this earlier on today's podcast with Kat Terrell about the NFC South. I love Antoine Winfield Jr. so much. And I think if that team is really visible, he could absolutely make a bunch of splash plays, especially if they're ahead in a lot of games, other teams are throwing a lot. He would be my dark, dark horse candidate. I don't even see him on the board at this site I'm looking at for odds. So if you're looking to dive real deep, I think he could be fun. Sounds good. All right. Coach of the year, which to me is the silliest award in the NFL. It's really just about who improves the most and who is the most surprising. So who are you going with? Who is your, he was a better coach than we expected him to be. So let's give him hardware of the year. Yeah. Well, watch this be the weir- the year that Bill Belichick actually. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, this is one of the years where you probably could make an argument for him. If that team goes 10 and six with no Brady, this is one of the years he might actually win it. Yeah, absolutely. Where all of those years where they went, you know, 14 and two, 13 and three over and over and over again. And he never won it because we get all excited by the shiny new coach who got to nine and seven or whatever. And, you know, they should probably just name it the Bill Belichick coach of the year award. But I actually put him on my list of my top three guys Um, in our staff file. When we had to make our picks, I picked Sean McDermott because if great choice, if, if the Bills get to if they win the AFC East, you know, he hasn't won that award before. It's a lot of, you know, there's so much to like about the way they've built that team, the plan in place. And if they win that division, he's probably done a really good job of coaching Josh Allen, which is kind of the biggest question that I have out there. Um, I have one more wild card name out there, but I want to hear your pick first. Sean McDermott is a great pick. I, I tend to look at these in awards in general, just kind of as a way to document who defined the season. And I think that the Cowboys are going to be a really good team this year. And I think that people like when the Cowboys are good. I think they kind of suck up a lot of attention. With Mike McCarthy being there in year one, I think there's just going to be a huge storyline associated with that. So Mike McCarthy is my pick. But I completely support Sean McDermott. He's going to get the uh, he's just not Jason Garrett votes. Honestly, though, that's how this award works. Like Matt Nagy was just not John Fox and he was the coach of the year. (laughs) I don't want to rip my eyeballs out watching this team. So I'm going to vote for Mike McCarthy. It's, I, it's really bad, but that's exactly how this is awarded every single year. So my one, my my kind of wild card pick, which I guess Sean McDermott might be kind of a wild card pick, but I'm going to throw Cliff Kingsbury in there that's too. That's a good one. I'm just really jacked up about what the Cardinals offense might look like. And if Kyler Murray, I mean, he's not on my MVP 
pick that we're going to talk about coming up. But if Kyler Murray and that offense can take a big jump, I think Cliff Kingsbury would get a lot of serious consideration here. Oh, we're going to get to the Cardinals here in a moment. So <laughs> don't, don't you worry about it. All right. Defensive player of the year. This one's kind of sad because two guys that probably had a real shot at winning this award, Derwin James and Von Miller, both of them out for the year. And beyond just the defensive player of the year pool kind of drying up a little bit. It's just guys I like watching play football. I love Derwin James so much. He's one of my favorite guys in the NFL to watch when healthy. Now we get another season of him not playing. And for you, I mean, how many Von Miller snaps have you watched in your life? This is going to be very different for you. Yeah, I mean, he's been remarkably durable. I mean, he's only missed a handful of games. He had that ACL injury at the very end of the 2013 season. So he missed the 2013 playoff run. But I mean, he's really only missed like five games since he came into the league in 2011. And yeah, he's just he's so fun to watch. He's really fun to cover. He's really fun to talk to. Um, And he's just, you know, living here in Denver, he is their most popular player, the face of the franchise kind of guy and really was kind of primed to have this bounce back season. So, yeah, I got a text uh, Tuesday night that said, oh, no, Vaughn. And it was like, oh, that sucks. That's the worst shit, you know, where you just go, what could it be? And then I went and watched Hard Knocks after where they documented Derwin James's injury. And so, you know, what a depressing night for you. I know. I just wanted to go like jump off the roof or something. It was just setting up to be such a such a bummer of a year. And, you know, when we're talking about defensive player of the year odds, both of these guys were in the top 10 in terms of having the best odds to win this award. And I know on our AFC West preview pod, we talked about Vaughn. Um, as being one of those guys who could be in there, that's kind of one of the things that he had left out there is he had never won this award and was really motivated that, you know, not just by the individual honors, but that if he could do that, that meant that he was doing really good things for his team and was really, you know, hoping to have a double digit uh, type of sack season. So all of that said, um, I'm not going to go the most popular name, but I'm going to go the guy who I think is going to deserve it and has probably deserved it in recent years and hasn't gotten it. And that's Chandler Jones from the Arizona Cardinals, who is always top two or three leading the league in sacks um, year in, year out, just so consistent. But because the Cardinals don't get kind of the national recognition, they don't play a lot of national games. And there's always, you know, somebody a little bit shinier, Aaron Donald, for example, you know, even within his own division, he hasn't quite gotten there. So he's going to be my pick right now, because I'd be shocked if he doesn't have, you know, 15 16 sacks this year i mean that's kind of how it goes with him on our nfc west preview podcast me and sando almost went the entire hour without mentioning his name which would have been the most appropriate thing ever if we just previewed the cardinals without talking about chandler jones because somehow he lives in anonymity even though he gets 15 sacks every single season it's a great choice because i think their offense is going to be pretty good mine i like both the odds and the player i'm picking tredavious white Because again, similar to your Sean McDermott coach of the year pick, if the Bills kind of have this narrative about them all season and he's their most visible defensive player and the defense is great, it's not dissimilar to what happened with Stephon Gilmore last year. You you have to really tally up the interceptions to win the award as a cornerback, but I think they're going to be able to take the ball away. I think their defense is going to be really good and I think they're going to be in line to maybe get a bye in the AFC. So I absolutely think that we're going to be talking a lot about Tredavious White this season. All right, here's the big one. Who is your MVP? If you listen to our Avis C. West preview pod, this isn't going to shock you, but I think it's going to be Patrick Mahomes. I mean, I know this is, he's the guy That's who is so the best. boring. I know, but he is, he is the guy, he is the best odds here. But I think, so I used to be an, uh, a voter for the, for this award. I'm not anymore. They took it away when I came to the athletic 
Wow. I still don't understand. Disrespect. I don't understand why. Um, because I think there's other about people the million who, subscribers. I should. I'm going to call Barry Wilner send AP, a note. if you're listening to this. Well, it was some weird thing. It was like, well, the AP or the athletic is a competitor, but like USA Today, where I used to work, was not a competitor. That I don't, makes I don't no understand. Sense. So anyways, and I'm sure there's now people on our staff, probably Mike Sando, who uh, is an AP voter. So anyways, but I did vote. I had a vote for five years or so. And um, so, you know, I kind of followed the voting trends and what do you look for? And I always kind of was a contrarian. You know, I voted for J.J. Watt one of the years. I think I voted for which Todd one? Gurley 2012 one years, or 2014? Uh, I believe 2014. He should have won it in 2012 for... when Adrian Peterson won it. I maintain yeah, this and I, didn't I will have to an... my grave. I didn't have a vote in 2012. Um, so it would have been two, it would have been 2014 that I voted for him. And I was one of like seven people who voted for him. And I remember being panicked going, what if I'm the only one? And then they're writing a news story about like, who's the idiot who voted for JJ Watt. Tony Instead, Dungy voted was... for Bobby Wagner. Well, that was the year that Tony Dungy <laughs> voted for Bobby Wagner. I was like, sweet, I'm off the hook. I don't have to worry about this. Um, but what tends to happen in these is that, you know, you look for, okay, who's had a breakout season? Who has done something that's statistically amazing? And Mahomes' stats really weren't that great for the regular season last year. He took a significant step back from where he was at in 2018. So he has this potential to take this statistical jump in 2020 from where he was last year. The bar is really, really high for him now. But we know this award tends to go to who is the best quarterback on the best team. And I think it's unlikely that Lamar Jackson would win in back-to-back years. So I wouldn't be shocked if Mahomes kind of becomes that guy, if he can have another, you know, if not transcendent season, um, if he's just by far and away the best quarterback. I have an imagination, so I am not picking Patrick Mahomes. (laughs) Hey, you told me to pick a favorite in a wild card. I, 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 I think that Mahomes is a good choice. I mean, I for the, all the reasons that you listed, the fact that he didn't win it last year, you know, we were a year removed from his 2018 MVP. I think his numbers are going to be absolutely crazy. That team has a huge advantage with their continuity offensively when you consider just how little practice time defenses are going to have early on. But... Similar to my thinking with the Mike McCarthy stuff and just the Cowboys owning the season, we've talked so much about Dak Prescott in the last 12 months. I think the Cowboys offense is going to be a monster, even with Lyle Collins missing the first couple games of the year. I just have, am so excited to watch the numbers and the points they're going to put up. I'm picking Dak Prescott. He's 22 to 1. He has essentially the same odds as Kyler Murray and Aaron Rodgers. I'll take that. I will absolutely take that. Yeah, I like I like that pick. I'm not, you know, I don't I don't hate that. One of my fantasy teams loves loves that pick right there. And I would love that for Dak himself to basically be betting on himself going into this year and then go out and win an MVP. I mean, the Cowboys, I mean, they're going to have to overpay him already. But imagine just how much more they'd have to overpay him if he had an MVP in his back pocket. Kirk Cousins got a fully guaranteed contract after he played the franchise tag game, and he was not playing with the guys that are on the Cowboys offense. I think Dak is going to be just fine. I think so, too. So do do you have a wild card? I mean, you kind of picked a guy who had lower odds, but do you have a, you know, if you really want to go a little bit deeper down the sheet? If I was picking really down the the sheet, if I was just kind of throwing one out there that I think would be fun, I think that Ben Roethlisberger and Matthew Stafford, both at 50 to 1, are interesting because I think both of those teams could absolutely make the playoffs. And the one I think is just ridiculous in terms of the odds when you consider the odds for other people is Ryan Tannehill. Ryan Tannehill is 80 to 1. He put up the best statistical season of any quarterback in the league over the last half of last year, and his odds are worse than Drew Locke's. 
Drew Locke is going off at, at the same. Excuse me, it's the same. They have the exact same odds. That is crazy to me. I do not understand that at all. Yeah, you're, so you're not on the Drew Locke for MVP wagon and bandwagon for that right now is what you're is what you're telling me. I am probably going to pass. I, I think that Drew Locke and Ryan Tannehill should not have the same MVP odds. I don't think Ryan Tannehill is going to win MVP, but I think that Drew Locke and him having the same chance is kind of crazy. Yeah, I'd love to know a little bit what's going into those odds, how they're making that. Is it just it's, like it's excitement all about, about trying to the Broncos? trick the public? Yes, it's yeah. that's all it is. You're just trying to ride the excitement. Everyone's talking about Jerry Judy and Cortland Sutton. That's what it is. And the conversation about Tannehill is. Is he going to be able to do it again? I mean, it with Drew Locke, the fact that he's never done it almost makes him more intriguing than somebody that yeah. has done it to betters, which is just silly. All right. Let's get to what really matters here. Who are your AFC playoff teams? All right. Um, shocking. I'm going to pick the Chiefs. Wow. Okay. To come, great. To come out of the AFC West. That one is acceptable. I'll, I'll allow that even if the Mahomes MVP pick is boring. <laughs> So, I'm sorry. I mean, he's the favorite, right? It's fine. Okay. It's fine. All you right. do what so you want. My, so I'm picking my division winners as the Chiefs, the Ravens, the Bills, and the Colts. Um, AFC South is super weird. No I'm idea picking the Colts too. The, I, the more I talked to Stephen Holder on the AFC South podcast, the more I liked the Colts, which is starting to worry me. I, I feel like I've gone too far down the rabbit hole. Well, and then I just have questions about everybody else in that division. Of so course. That's, so that said, my wild card picks are the Steelers. I'm going to pick the Titans because I think Ryan Tannehill can do it again. I, I like their infrastructure a lot. They just added Jadavian Clowney. So uh, it, I, all of a sudden, things are looking pretty good for them Monday night in Denver with the Broncos no longer having yeah. Ben Miller. So um, I'm going to take the Titans as a wild card team out of the AFC South. And then... Let's just get weird and let the Raiders make the playoffs. I'll have the Raiders as my seventh wildcard team out of the AFC. So no Patriots. No Patriots. Wow. I was, Give me I some chaos. You, I thought that you were going to throw the Patriots in there. And if you had, we would have had the same seven AFC <laughs> playoff teams. I also have the Chiefs, the Bills, the Colts, the Ravens. I think the Chiefs and the Ravens are probably... Well, only one team gets a bye this year, right? So I think the one, Chiefs one are going to... One bye, yeah. So I think the Chiefs will get the bye. Um, I think that the Ravens will be right there. I, I think the Bills are going to be good. I, I do have faith in just the overall team that they've built. Uh, I think the Steelers with Roethlisberger, all they need is a quality offense. It doesn't need to be great when you consider how good their defense is probably going to be. I'm with you with the Titans. I think they're not as good, but I still think they're pretty good. And I just have faith in the Patriots to figure it out. I think the defense is still going to be really good. I think the cam is good enough with everything else they have on that coaching staff. All right, NFC. All right, let's go. Uh, my division winners, and I had the hardest time picking the NFC West, which I don't think is unusual. I think no, if you know with certainty who's going to win that division, you're lying. So um, I did pick the Niners to come out of that division. Um, so I'm going Niners, Saints, Cowboys, and Packers. Also, don't feel great about the NFC North, about who's going to win that division. Um, and then my wildcard teams, I've got the Vikings, the Seahawks, and Tom Brady and the Bucks because we can't have the playoffs. I'm gonna I'm gonna say we're gonna have them without the Patriots, but we can't have the playoffs without Tom Brady. That's fair. That would just be too much change in one year. My division winners: I have the Cowboys in the NFC East. I think they're going to have the number one seed in the NFC. I have the Saints out of the NFC South. The Seahawks out of the NFC West. I, I just Sando convinced me. I don't know what it was. I had the, the Niners before we went into that podcast, and he just the way he laid it out. I don't know. It's just his soothing voice. He really swayed me in a way I did not expect. I'm picking the Vikings in the NFC North. I totally agree. That division is extremely weird. I just think the Packers are going to crash down to earth pretty hard. I also have the Bucks. 
I have the Niners instead of the Seahawks as a play as a wild card team. And my last one, let's get weird as hell. Arizona Cardinals. I believe. I believe in Cliff and Kit or Cliff and Kyler year two. I am ready for this. I mean, I I'm there, right? I mean, I think the NFC West is going to be so crazy, and I just think that the gauntlet of getting through that division is is the only thing that's keeping me from picking three teams there. Because I think the Rams. I mean, we haven't talked to the Rams about about the Rams at all, and I think the Rams are going to be pretty good. You know, I don't think they're going to be thirteen and three good, but they're still going to be a tough team to play every single week. So I just think that the how to make that what they're going to need to do to make that jump to go from being one of the worst teams in the league to a playoff team is pretty significant, but they are now on my must watch. Like I, when I sit down on Sunday and I have red zone on, I'm probably going to put the Cardinals game, isolate that on like one of the boxes because I absolutely want to watch what Kyler Murray is doing every Sunday now. And that was not the case last year. I believe that the Cardinals and the Bengals are in the late slate on Sunday in week one, which Give me all of that. I'm very excited to watch that. And I think the Saints and the Bucks are too. Like that's a fun selection of football. I'm just starved for any football games at this point. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, I'm I'm jacked up. We're we're here. We're 24 hours away from real football. I can't believe it. I'm working on a story right now that's going to publish on Thursday just about how did we get here? I know. Like everything I know. that's happened over the last 6 months. It's just it's really unbelievable. All right. AFC Championship game. What are you looking at? All right, so I'm going for the game that I that I think we all wanted last year and didn't get, and that's Ravens and Chiefs. Yep. At Arrowhead Stadium, which by then, you know, maybe we'll have more than 20,000 fans. So, yeah, I'm going to go Ravens at Chiefs. And like you're going to say this is boring, but I think the Chiefs are going to win that game if they play that at Arrowhead in the AFC Championship game. I tend to agree. I really want to pick the Ravens because I just love the revenge tour after falling just short when you're the team of the year, similar to what the Chiefs did last year. But if it's in Arrowhead, it's just hard for me to be picking against the Chiefs, even if you know they don't have that many fans in the stands. I'm also picking the Chiefs over the Ravens in the AFC Championship game. All right, your NFC Championship game. All right. So while I did not pick the Seahawks to win the division, I do have them going to the NFC Championship game against wow. the New Orleans. Yeah, I like I like Russell. I think you know let's let him cook in the playoffs, and you know maybe the Niners will get upset at home by somebody else. So you know, or if maybe it's a Seahawks Niners playoff game in the divisional round, let's say you know I I would like I think any time that the Seahawks and the Niners are going to play, it's going to come down to potentially literally inches, just like oh, yeah. Week 17 did last year. So um, weird shit I, is I, coming for sure. Yeah. So I'm not going to go straight chalk in the, in the NFC. I'm going to have the saints versus the Seahawks in the NFC championship game. And I'm going to have the saints coming out. I also the have the NFC. saints winning the NFC. I have them so going, we have the same picks here. I have them going to Dallas and beating the Cowboys. I think the, the Cowboys are going to fly a little too close to the sun, too good, too fast. The saints finally in a year where we might not have expected it, finally break through and get to the Super Bowl. And I have the Saints beating the Chiefs in the and Super Drew Bowl. And Drew Brees can ride off into the sunset. I, I think the, the Chiefs are, or the Saints are so deep. I, unless Drew Brees falls off a cliff, and I just don't think he's been that bad at the end of seasons like other people have. I think that they're a couple bounces of the ball away from being in a Super Bowl over the last couple of years. It's not as if there's some fundamental flaw with this team that's prevented them from breaking through. Uh, luck has a lot more to do with who wins the Super Bowl than I think we admit a lot of the time. And I think this year they get a little bit luckier. And I, this is it. I, I think that they are the most complete team in the NFL. Who do you have? Who is your Super Bowl winner? So I'm going to go with the Chiefs. Again, it's so hard to repeat in the NFL, but they're so set up to do it 
with the continuity that they have, the quarterback, the coach combination. I know Andy Reid is coming up with some new stuff. They're not going to be the exact same sort of, they're not going to look exactly like they did during the playoffs last year. Um, but here's my question for you, Robert. Who wins Super Bowl MVP and why is it Taysom Hill? Oh, man. Weird Super Bowl MVPs are one of my favorite things. Like Malcolm, uh, who was it? Malcolm, Malcolm Smith, Malcolm, Malcolm Smith, Malcolm, Malcolm Smith, Smith yeah. won. Malcolm Smith won for the Seahawks that year, even though Cam Chancellor 100% should have. And I predicted 100%. he was going to, and I'm still mad about it. Uh, Dexter Jackson winning was always great. So for, I don't know. I Maybe it's Michael Thomas. Maybe Michael Thomas just has a monster game uh, against the Chiefs. I could absolutely see that happening. Yeah, taste, Cam taste Jordan. No, not Cam Jordan, because Mitchell Schwartz is there. He's not going to torch Mitchell Schwartz, but somebody weird. I, I hey, Taysom Hill, couple big plays. Super Bowl MVP is always a very strange award that I appreciate very much. So, Lindsay, that's it. Week We're one, here. we're here. We're here. The football kicks off in a matter of hours. I have no idea how we got to this point, but to find out, people should read your story on the Athletic today. People yes, should subscribe well, to the Athletic. Just passed. A million subscribers this week. As I as I tweeted today, I feel like the guy who signed a 10-day contract and won a championship, even though he was on the team for two weeks. It's great. It's a really good spot for me. Guys, thank you so much for listening to all of our previews. I sincerely appreciate it. This has been so much fun. I cannot wait to get the season started. Thank you to Lindsay. Thank you to everyone that joined us for our divisional previews. Please rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. We will be back on Sunday night with a recap of week one. Until then... Enjoy the football. Enjoy the weekend. We'll talk to you soon. This was the Athletic Football Show.